When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As you know, I don't think it's all about Bitcoin. I think this whole digital asset space, whether it's Ethereum, Polkadot, Cardano, non-fungible tokens, all of these things that are developing are moving so fast that almost none of us can keep on top of it. Even the true experts in the field are struggling with the sheer amount of innovation as network effects on top of network effect and nascent projects on top of nascent projects all builds into something. We've seen the explosive rise of DeFi and this astonishing new rise in NFTs and digital artwork and IP and there's so many things that I really want to get to the bottom of it all. To ask some of the best investors in this space, the people I truly trust, to say, hey, how are you thinking about all of this? And how can we all benefit from this? How can we really understand the future of the alternative investments that lay outside of Bitcoin or even Ethereum? Things that we may not yet understand, but we need to get up to speed on. And I want to ask them how they construct their portfolios as well. And that's going to help all of us to figure out what to do, because it is risky out there, because some projects will work and some projects will fail. But it's my fundamental belief that we're at the start of a journey of something so enormous that we can't get our heads around what is coming. We are moving into a digital metaverse where everything is digitized. All value is digitized. And many of the assets that we own and exchange are digitized. We can't yet get our heads around a world that's so different to the world we live in, a world where we become the owners of those protocols where we can invest actually in that new system, as opposed to being a bystander and letting a corporation or a government control it to make all the money. These things are literally revolutionary. And you know, I think there are many narratives within the market and, and you know, Bitcoin, you know, there can only be one and everything else is a shitcoin narrative, I think is so far behind the truth, the innovation, the network effects that are going. So anyway. I got my three favorite people together. So I got Jeff Dorman, Joey Krug, and Ari Paul to take us through all of it. So let's first hear from Jeff. And Jeff is fantastic to frame this whole thing for us. Jeff, it's been a while. You've been on the platform, and I've not spoken to you on the platform for a long time now. So welcome back. Good to chat to you. I'm excited to do this. Listen, I'm a huge fan of what you guys have been doing. I you know, blurt on about... Arca to everybody, because I think it's really interesting. So this whole piece, I'm trying to get a deeper understanding and let the audience come on the same journey of knowledge about the alt space. So kind of the world outside of Bitcoin, the people are less familiar with, but is massively exciting. So first, I want to get an idea of 
how you're thinking about this at Arca and personally. Sure. Yeah, and, and it's it's important to know. I mean, the reason that we started Arca and the reason that we have a team now of almost 20 people, all from traditional finance. We don't have a single software developer on our team. We are all traditional finance people. We came here not because of Bitcoin, not because of Ethereum. We came because we saw all these other areas where, where blockchain-based assets and digital assets were taking off. That's where we saw the real value. Um, so we love Bitcoin. We love Ethereum. Nothing against that. But it really is these, uh, uh, you know, these other assets that we're so excited about. Um, and and you, you'll never even hear me use the word altcoin or anybody at Arca use the word altcoin. Digital because, assets. Yeah. And, and the reason is, is it's not because we're dismissive of that term. It's that this, this asset class has evolved so fast that a lot of the terminology we use from five years ago or three years ago even is just immediately obsolete when you start to see these other assets grow. So you know, altcoins made sense when it really was an industry of just Bitcoin plus a bunch of other stuff that nobody knew what it was. Now, the term altcoin doesn't even really make sense anymore because it's really different sectors and different pockets of digital assets that do different things. It's, it's almost more like the fixed income market, right? Uh, you wouldn't say that there's treasuries and then there's alt fixed income, right? There's treasuries, there's, you know, uh, uh, munis, there's corporates, there's high yield distressed investment grade product, you know, structured product, et cetera. It's the same thing now, right? This is this has evolved into so much more that you almost have to put that fixed income hat on when you think about the space. So the first thing that we do when we educate investors or when we speak about what we're doing is we say, let's get rid of everything you, you once knew, right? It's almost like if you come in with a bad golf swing, instead of trying to fix your swing, let's just turn you around to the other side and start over. So we, we, we think cryptocurrency is one of four types of digital assets, right? And Bitcoin obviously is the biggest cryptocurrency. You could even argue it's the only cryptocurrency of, of any real relevance, but it is a cryptocurrency, right? It is a macro investment vehicle. It is meant to be a store of value, potentially one day a medium, medium of exchange, but there's no underlying asset value here. It's very difficult to model any cash flows or anything regarding it, right? It is a purely you know, currency. The second type of digital asset is where Ethereum falls into, and that is your protocols and platforms. Ethereum is clearly the market leader, clearly the biggest. Almost everything built in this space to date has been built on Ethereum, but there's hundreds of other protocols and platforms, right? These are, these are uh, other chains that are trying to do exactly what Ethereum did, right? I, sometimes I think about it almost like the iOS app store, right? If you have the iOS app store, then you have thousands of different apps that are built on top of it. The same thing is happening, only there's hundreds of different app stores now, and all these different uh, blockchains are being built, and ultimately developers and, uh, and other projects will be built on top of these blockchains. Um, that's a totally different category, totally different risk-reward than anything related to Bitcoin or monetary policy or macroeconomics. Um, the third type of digital assets is what we call asset-backed tokens, right? This is exactly what it sounds like. These are tokens that are backed by something real. They're backed by equity. They're backed by debt. Maybe it's backed by an income stream. Maybe it's backed by other digital assets, but it is something tangible. You can model this in the same way that you model you know, a debt or equity instrument using free cash flow, using dividend yield models, things like that. Um, and there's, a great, there, there's some really creative examples of this. Uh, most people are probably familiar or at least heard about uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, the NBA player who tokenized his NBA salary. Right? That's an asset-backed token. That is a that's a token that is explicitly and legally backed by the income that he's earning uh, with his contract with the NBA. So you're going to see a lot more asset-backed tokens. Um, and again, this has nothing to do with Ethereum, nothing to do with Bitcoin. They're totally different. And then the fourth type of digital asset, which is probably the most evolutionary, if not revolutionary, um, is what we call pass-through tokens. These are tokens that are 
accruing real economic value, and they are passing through this value directly to token holders. Um, usually, it's in the form of, of sort of like a hybrid security, where maybe it's quasi-equity, quasi-loyalty you know, points. Um, Binance Coin, which, which I think BNB just got into the top three for the first time ever, that's a, the best example of a pass-through token. So Binance is a real company with real equity, uh, with a real CEO, probably a real board of directors, even though it's an Asian company. Um, and they have they introduced the BNB token, where if you own it, you get part utility and rewards, right? You get to use it to get discounts trading on their platform. You get to use it to uh, uh, get access to deals that they bring on their platform. So in that regard, it's more like a loyalty reward card. But you also, Binance takes uh, a percentage of their profits every quarter, and they actually go out and buy back and burn existing tokens. So in that way, it's almost like an amortizing token or like a, a sinking fund. So you can see how this works all of a sudden. You have uh, the economic value created from uh, uh, the buybacks and burns or from the profit pass-through, and you have the rewards and discounts you're getting as a member or a customer of Binance, and you're basically putting that together into one security. So these pass-through tokens is what's driving DeFi, it's what's driving sports and gaming, it's what's driving NFTs in some way. Um, there is a lot of other things happening in the space. And when you think about those four categories that I just mentioned, you can see why I draw the parallel to fixed income, right? You have these different pockets of digital assets that are only related in structure. They're both, they're all digital assets, just like all fixed income vehicles are all bonds. But ultimately, they're totally different in their sectors and in their makeup and in their structure. And, and that's why this asset class is becoming so uh, incredibly interesting from an investment standpoint. So when you're building a portfolio, are you building the, um separate portfolios for each one of these asset classes, or are you diversifying across them and kind of doing a sector weighting? How are you thinking of this when you put it all together? Because yeah. I mean, as you said, they're very different, very different. Uh, yes, they all have a correlation to the market overall in some respects, but but not necessarily. I mean, it, it, and right. it's very complex. It is very complex. And I think you know, ARC is an asset management firm dedicated to digital assets, right? So we are creating products and vehicles and strategies that we think have investor demand. So the first part of your question has to be answered by, do the investors even know this other world exists yet? And is there demand for that? And, and the reality is right now, there's not, right? Most people coming into this space either don't even know this other world exists yet, or they have sort of an on-off switch in their head saying, I'm either going to be involved in digital assets or I'm not. And if I am, just give me the exposure. I think in two or three years, you're going to see a lot more specialization. The investors are going to get more sophisticated. They're going to get more uh, uh, focused on, well, I don't want everything. I just want my Bitcoin exposure, or I just want my platform exposure. I just want asset back exposure. Maybe I want a yield strategy. That's going to start happening over time. And you're going to have asset managers like ourselves and others who are going to start feeding that. Um, but right now, it's a little more all-encompassing. You know, We built a team of people from the M&A world, people from uh, a venture world, people from traditional debt and equity worlds. And we are looking at anywhere that we can find value in the space. And sometimes that's in Bitcoin. Sometimes that's in a pass-through. Sometimes that's in you know a yield vehicle or an asset back token. Um, but I think ultimately it's growing so fast that you have to be a little nimble and evolve as this asset class evolves for now. And then later you'll see a lot more specialization where again, you'll have your separate treasury funds, your separate corporate funds, your separate distress funds, you'll see that happen in digital assets pretty soon as well. And how do you manage the risks in this? Because this is a very volatile asset class. 
mm-hmm. um, which is you know skewed upside, so great. But we also know it's got pretty harsh downside. How do you think about risk management within the portfolio of, of particularly these less liquid investments that you've got? Sure. Yeah, and it's a great question, and it's a it's a huge part of what we're doing at Arco. Like um, the very first thing we did when we started this company was we outsourced to a risk analytics firm, and we said we need to figure out how to model this stuff. How we how do we look at the correlations, the betas, the vars, the intercorrelation between assets. Um, this may sound crazy to a lot of people coming into the space, but we're downside investors. We're not upside investors. Maybe that's because I spent two decades in the uh, distressed world where all we think about is the downside and not the upside. But that's how we model this stuff. We're looking for assets where there is clear tangible value, where there's clear downside protection. Um, and, and we're trying to build a portfolio from a construction standpoint where these assets are completely non-correlated to each other, as well as being non-correlated to other asset classes. So for instance, when we first started this fund three years ago, almost everything was very highly correlated to Bitcoin for a lot of different reasons, right? One is a lot of these tokens I just mentioned didn't even exist yet. A lot of these have come in the last few years. Um, two is the entire infrastructure was built around Bitcoin. You had to trade through Bitcoin to get to these other assets. As a result, they traded together. Um, but our fund's correlation to Bitcoin has gone down pretty much every single day since we started our fund. And our correlation actually to the Russell 2000, to the NASDAQ has actually gone up because these are largely early stage technology companies. Um, and you know, Bitcoin, again, has kind of graduated into being this macro asset that is you know, being touched by every part of the world, right? You have insurance companies, you have macro funds, you have individuals in emerging economies, you have corporate treasuries. I mean, there's no other there's no other asset in the world other than U.S. Treasuries that are being touched by this many people. Bitcoin is now a completely different asset than anything else that we are investing in in our portfolio, right? Bitcoin's correlation to gold and to the dollar has gone up, while its correlation to other assets in the digital asset space has gone down. So we can monitor all this stuff from a risk standpoint, and we can say, okay, at the portfolio level, how does the how are these assets going to relate to each other? And then at the individual token level, we can say. You know, is there asset coverage? Is there a DCF model that tells us what this should be worth? Is there a yield that we're generating on some of these assets? And we have real models and real uh, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, techniques for how we value these assets. And in some ways, it's, it's actually easier than in the fixed income and the equity world, because we have all these public data available to us to see how these uh, uh, companies and projects and tokens are performing. Um, and I'll give you an example of that. Um, there's a company called Nexus Mutual. Uh, Nexus Mutual is in, 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 it's part of decentralized finance. It's DeFi. Um, they are writing insurance coverage on all the things that are happening in the decentralized world. So if you decide you want to use Uniswap to trade, but you're afraid of maybe the risks of hacking of Uniswap, you can go take out uh, insurance on Uniswap getting hacked to protect your assets. Well, Nexus Mutual, the way it works is it's, it's, a, it's an insurance mutual. It's very similar to any other insurance company that you may or may not have ever invested in. You have to invest capital into the pool, and you get back the NXM token, and that token is explicitly and fully backed by the capital that's in the pool, plus, obviously, as an insurance company, they're going to make money as their premiums are being paid and as they earn a float on that capital that's sitting there. Well, if you looked at anything from like Lemonade to Root Financial in the public markets, these growth insurance companies are trading at 50 times book value. Uh, Nexus Mutual trades at 1.3 times book value. And actually, earlier this year, it was trading at a discount to book value. That's insane for any sort of a growth asset with real hard assets behind it. These are the kind of things that we can do where you mentioned risk management. I I know exactly what my downside is here. It's the book value of that company. It doesn't mean it can't trade below that value, but I know what it's worth, right? And that's from a risk management standpoint, 
we can do at the portfolio level and at the individual token level and run this no different than investors are used to in the debt and equity world. Fascinating. So, okay, let's go through the top because there's a lot for people to absorb in this space. So what I want to do is just point people in some directions of things that are interesting. So what are the top three most interesting projects, tokens, whatever, that you think are out there that, that are kind of available to people? Because some of this stuff is still doesn't is pre-trading, you know, blah, blah, blah. But what are the three things you say, listen, you're new to this space, here's three great projects to look at? Sure. I, I, I use this one a lot as an example because I think it's both really interesting conceptually and also a great use case for blockchain. Um, so there is a company called uh, Socios, uh, which is a European company, and they have a, a token called Chili's, CHZ. Um, this is in the theme that we call the digitization of the fan experience. This is using blockchain to connect sports teams and athletes and musicians, et cetera, to their, to their, to their fans. So Socios came up with the idea of what's called a fan token. They are issuing tokens on behalf of sports teams like FC Barcelona, Juventus. They actually just came out with an AC Milan token recently. And these tokens are issued to the fans. And if you own one of these tokens, you become part of the governance of that team. You get to vote on you know, what jerseys they're going to wear, uh, who might start in an exhibition-friendly match, what sponsorship they're going to take. You're a part of the team, right? You actually have a real vote in how your favorite team uh, transacts. But also, these tokens are traded on an exchange. So the price of the token actually goes up and, up and down as there's demand for that team. Uh, you know, it, not so much like you know, in your game. It's not like the price is going to go up if a goal is scored. But you actually can see the prices of these fan tokens going up and down as the teams make trades for better players, as they do things that, that improve the prospects of the team. More importantly... For our standpoint from an investor, we're not investing in the individual fan tokens, but we invested in uh, CHZ. So Chili's is the exchange where, which is basically acting as the underwriter and the trading platform for all of these fan tokens. So when you think about the addressable market of all of these you know, teams that are out there, they have a partnership not only with uh, English Premier League and some of the soccer leagues, but they have a partnership with UFC, and they're going to be doing some things in cricket coming up as well. You can just see how big the fan base is, and all of these transactions that are happening are going to accrue value back to the Chili's uh, exchange, which eventually accrues value back to the Chili's token. So it's a really exciting uh, company that I talk about for a lot of reasons. One is there's three different investment types here. You can invest in Socios, the equity, if you're a private equity investor or a venture capital firm. You can invest in the Chili's token if you have a Binance account or if you trade digital assets. And you can invest in the individual fan tokens if you're a fan of the team. So right there, it's really cool in terms of thinking about a capital structure, right? There's, there's different ways that you can invest in this project. And then from a thematic standpoint, you know, we really believe that blockchain assets are going to change the way uh, sports and entertainers directly uh, engage with their fans, right? So from a thematic standpoint, it, it's huge for us, right? You've seen the rise in esports. You've seen the rise uh, uh, in... Um, you know, musicians and stuff directly going to their fans. This, this is the next level, right? Sports teams, sports uh, channels, they're going to start directly uh, engaging with their fans in this way. And it's a perfect use, use case for blockchain assets. So that's really exciting to us. We, we, love, we, we love something like that. And it's probably something that makes sense to everyone, but it's probably under the radar that people have never seen before. And I've been talking about exactly this for a long time, how big this is going to be. In an influencer-driven world, whether it's team and a community-driven world, this kind of stuff has huge value. Yeah. And people have not even started to scratch the surface of this. And of interest, there's one question I want to ask. With 
So let's say FC Barcelona issues a uh, their own token. Mm-hmm. Is that a once-off sale to them, and they get a, some money up front for it, or do they participate alongside their fans in the tokenomics somehow? So, and again, this is again why we always talk about fixed income, right? There, there's an infinite number of combinations of how you can do these things, right? Like, like with a bond, you could have how many different coupons or maturities or call structures, et cetera. A lot of these tokens are being structured in the same way where there's not a one size fits all. So in the case of um, these fan tokens, I think the early participants were a little maybe skeptical or at least wanted to see some proof of concept before they did it. So they basically did it in a no risk situation to them. They basically said, you know, here, go ahead and issue this token on our behalf. And if it works, then we'll participate. Now that there's some pr- proof of concept and there's some success, the teams are, 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 are doing a little bit more hands-on. They're saying, you know, we, we want to be involved with how many tokens are outstanding with the schedule for future release of tokens. Maybe they're going to own some of the tokens themselves and give them out as rewards to fans for certain things. So there's a lot of iterations happening right now. Um, but it, it is, it's definitely working. I mean, you can, you can go to, a, there's a site called CoinGecko where they have a section called fan sports tokens. And you can see all the different fan sports tokens that are out there and how they're trading and how they've grown. Uh, and it's just, it's really cool, right? Because this is like a grassroots effort of just fans that are not only getting to engage with their favorite team, but now they're being rewarded economically for it as well. And also, it creates a market where I can now bet on AC Milan versus the, you know, the future success of AC Milan versus FC Barcelona, because you've now created a market, exactly. which is not sports betting, but it's betting on the team. Yes, some of these have equity, so yep. you could do it that way, but this is a democratized version of that. Again, amazing breakthrough. So what, what, what else what else on your radar screen that people should look at? Um, so another one, uh, you know, we, we, we've been big investors in decentralized finance for a long time. We, we're a big believer in that. And, and to dumb down what decentralized finance is, it's really just taking all the traditional fin- finance applications that you're used to, everything from banking to insurance to asset management to exchange trading, and you're doing it in the form in a decentralized way where there's no actual middleman. Um, so we've been we've been big believers in in DeFi for a long time, and obviously that's a buzzword now. But a year ago, most people had never heard of it. But there's a lot of really interesting innovation happening in DeFi. Um, one that we like that is a little off the radar and a little smaller cap uh, is, is a company called uh, HXRO. Um, HXRO is it's 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 they tried to gamify options trading. So for anyone who's familiar with finance and trading options, options can be kind of complex, right? Not only do you have to think about uh, the strikes and the vol um, and, you know, the time value of money, but also obviously, um, uh, uh, you know, there's a fair amount of risk involved when you're doing binary options. Well, these guys at uh, HXRO, they're, they're ex-floor traders in the, uh, from Chicago who have been doing this for 20 years. And they said, why can't we gamify this? Why can't we make it in a way where it looks more like gambling, where it's like, I know exactly what my odds of a payout are. I can go buy a 60,000 Bitcoin strike, but instead of worrying about my thetas and my deltas and my gammas, here's just the payout. It's going to be two and a half to one if you hit 60,000 by the time you know February 26th rolls around. Well, they did it as, again, they started as a regular company, real CEO, real organization, um, but they are slowly, you know, decentralizing this. They have a hero token, HXRO, and there's a proposal out there right now to make the HXRO token own 100% of the revenue that this company uh, generates. So they're decentralizing the ownership of this company and incentivizing you to go on there and play, and then you get rewarded financially if you're a customer of, of this project. 
So it, it kind of hits all the it kind of hits all the themes and buttons for us. It's a strong management team. It's a more it's a growing market digital assets. It's gaming and blockchain putting it together, um, and it's decentralization all at once. And it's totally under the radar. It's it's less than a hundred million dollar market cap compared to some of these twenty thirty billion dollar market caps. But they're really hitting on something that has real product market fit and real demand. And the way I think about it, you know, this is this is again an example of that pass through token, right? Not only do you get rewards when you own the HXRO token when you trade on their site, but you also get the financial benefit of those revenue pass throughs. It, it reminds me of Amazon versus Amazon Prime, and I've used this analogy before. But if you're an Amazon Prime member, you're getting all the benefits of Amazon, right? You're getting Whole Foods discounts, free shipping, movies, music, but you're not getting any financial benefit. If you're an Amazon shareholder, you're getting all the financial benefit, but you don't even have to be an Amazon user if you don't want to be. What these digital assets are doing is they're combining those two. So if you're an HXRO token holder, you're a customer, you're getting benefits by using their platform for owning the token, but now you're also getting economically rewarded to bootstrap that growth and to get, it's, it's, it's brilliant. As a behavioral incentive system, this is just mind blowing. This, yeah. The change in this, the splitting, yeah, the, the merging between user and equity owner is incredible. Yeah. Because it creates network effects everywhere. Yeah, I mean, we think we think tokens are the greatest capital formation and company boot, customer bootstrapping mechanism that have ever been invented. And we think it's only a matter of time before every company has a digital asset in their balance sheet and in, in their capital structure at some point. And the way we think about it, again, using those examples, like think about McDonald's, right? McDonald's has almost probably no overlap between their shareholders and their customer base. That's insane. Like we can change that. We can make it to a point where your customers, the people who are driving the interest in the company's future, are also the ones who are economically uh, uh, motivated. So when you think about that, uh, what you're doing is you're, you're turning all of your customers immediately into evangelists, right? And it's going to bootstrap the growth of every company you can think of, from your local gym to your local restaurants to your hairstylist, you know, you name it. I think every company. Uh, from you know the airlines to Starbucks, et cetera, they're all going to have a token. And this token, like I said, it's going to be part of the capital structure. You're still going to have debt. Your debt is going to be a claim on the assets of the company. You're still going to have equity. The equity is going to be a claim on the, you know, the revenue and growth of, of potential of the profits. And then you're going to have a token, which is, which is a claim on future customer growth or a claim on uh, network growth. And all three of these are going to sit in a company's capital structure, and every company is going to have a token. The only issue is still, and I've been thinking through this, is in M&A, the traditional world doesn't know how to, what, what happens in a change of ownership structure. Right. Well, I think, I think it's more of a liquidation than M&A, right? You, we've seen M&A. Um, in fact, there was a company, uh, Voyager, who just did a merger with LGO, both of, the, both of which had public stock, but Voyager has a token. And it just improved. The token went up from ten cents to five dollars because all of a sudden this was a bigger, stronger company, and those revenue pass-throughs are going to be bigger. So as long as the company in an M and A scenario is still a going concern, you can tweak the token to fit whatever that going concern is going to be. Right? Uh, that's sort of the beauty of tokens. It's not locked into one thing. It's not like stocks or bonds where you know exactly what you own the day you buy it. With tokens, you can change the tokenomics anytime you want. So it's frightening from that standpoint, right? You have less protection. Uh, it, from bad actors, but it's also riveting, riveting from the standpoint of great. I can evolve as the company evolves. Instead of backing a company and hoping that they pivot into a new market, they can stay in the market but pivot the token to make sure it works within what the what the company is. So I think in an M and A scenario, you, you, there's not a lot of precedent here. Like you said, you, you're going to see bankers emerge. You're going to see different token structures and how it reacts. 
I think the issue with more is going to be in liquidation scenarios, right? I don't think you're going to have liquidation preferences if there's bankruptcies or if there's uh, defaults. Um, but I think in pure M&A or in just growth stories, you're going to see these tokens evolve to fit exactly what the company is doing. Because like we just talked about, if this is helping drive customer growth and this is engaging uh, your, your users, you're going to find a way to keep this going and, and, and not you know, kill the golden goose. Okay, what's the third one? Uh, third interesting company. Okay. Um, I think I'll try to find one that's maybe a little off the run because I think everyone's probably heard of some of the DeFi ones at this point. They've heard of some of the, the other ones. All right, I got, I got, I've got one for you. Um, Axie Infinity. So Axie Infinity is a game. And I'm going to preface this by saying that I'm 41 years old. I don't play video games anymore. I've got a team of youngsters here at Arca who, who do this. But um, when anybody who has played a video game, you know that you're at the mercy of the game, right? Whatever you do in that game, the game owns it. You don't own it outside the game. One of the unique attributes of blockchain is that you become the owner of the asset. So if you earn an asset in a game, you, in theory, can take that asset out of the game and trade it or do whatever else you want with it, right? So you can envision, maybe I need to get a sword one day to unlock a new level, but that sword is also valuable in four other games. I'm going to take that sword with me and bring it over to another game. Or maybe I'm done playing because I just turned 41 and I'm old. I'm going to go sell that asset to someone else who's going to use it. So blockchain-based games are, are on the rise. And Axie Infinity is a pretty cool game where, where you build these characters and you, you, you build these characters to fight battles, you buy land, you do all these things in a mini ecosystem, in this Axie Infinity uh, ecosystem. But the Axie token actually backs the treasury of the company and that treasury gets built every time there's one of these transactions. So every time an act, one of these characters gets traded or a piece of land gets traded or there's transaction value, there's a revenue, there, there's a fee attached to that. And that revenue sits in the treasury and the Axie token holders own that treasury. So again, this is a combination of a pass-through token with an asset-backed token. It's asset-backed in the sense that you own the actual assets in that treasury, but it's pass-through in the sense that when you're an Axie token holder, you get to participate in this game and use those tokens in the game. So it's just one example. There's a lot of different games out there, um, but we think it's really interesting because it combines, again, all those elements that we're looking for. Strong management team, strong product market fit in blockchain gaming, really unique use case for how the token integrates into the game as well as economic value. Um, so these are the things that we're looking for. And you mentioned earlier, like, how are we doing this across an entire asset class? Yeah, I'm just thinking the same thing as I'm yeah. listening to you. I'm thinking, how the hell do you keep on top of all of this? I mean, it's it, look, this is a 24-7 market. And we, I mean, we have a team of eight people on our portfolio at ARCA that are working basically 24-7, right? This is, this is not the easiest thing in the world for a retail investor to come in and just do on your own. But inevitably, because of this network growth, because of the way people are incentivized to, to talk about the things they're doing, inevitably, you're going to hear about one-off assets here and there. And you, there is a way to go in and do some research on it on your own and learn about it, right? Um, this is, you know, the, the, the younger generation of investors is the smartest we've ever seen in terms of doing their own work and learning about things. They just need to be... Uh, 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 brought to the attention of what it is. So I, I think the takeaway for me when I'm thinking about talking to other people is don't classify everything as an altcoin. Don't think of everything as a cryptocurrency. If somebody presents something to you, break it down in your head. Okay, what sector is this? Is this gaming? Is this DeFi? Is this Web 3.0? Is it something else? What does the token actually do, right? Is the token just, you know, it's just, it doesn't, it's not attached to anything and we're just going to try to figure it out later. Or is it actually attached to something? Is there real cash flows? Is there a real yield? Is there a real use case for it? 
And I think that is, you know, you're not going to be able to cover the entire space, right? It's growing. I mean, just in the 30 minutes we're talking right now, there's probably three new tokens my team is evaluating that I've never heard of. So you're not going to be able to cover the whole space, but you are going to be able to think about the space in a more logical way and not just think, oh, there's Bitcoin and hundreds of other coins. Yeah, that is fantastic. Just I've learned so much in half an hour and it's just really inspiring the opportunity and the change, you know, I love change. And what's going on here is just, you know, like you and I have been in the traditional finance business forever. And we've just been given an entirely new sandbox and realized it's not a sandbox. It's the size of the Sahara desert. It's massive. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 I mean, I, you can see it in my voice. You can see it in my face. Like I, I've never been more excited in my career than doing what I'm doing here. And I, and like you just said, like we spent decades in traditional finance and there's pockets of traditional finance that are really exciting and interesting. But this is this whole new, you know, oasis that nobody knows exists, right? I mean, we are the pioneers in something that the world doesn't even know exists yet. And you can just see how exciting and fascinating the growth of this is going to be. Jeff, brilliant, my friend. Good to speak to you as ever. And look, we'll catch up for a longer chat one day soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me, Ralph. So Jeff, as ever, brings the goods. I'm so interested in what they're doing at Arca. They're approaching the space really differently. But I think now is time to get to some of the most established players in the space. And the really big established player is Pantera. They've been in this for a long time. And Dan Moorhead's a good friend of mine, and I really admire what he's managed. And Joey runs the portfolio for Dan in this whole space. And I think it's going to be great to hear what he thinks is going on, because he's going to be slightly different to Jeff and be focusing on different things. Joey, good to see you. Yeah, you too. Um, I'm trying to get my knowledge base up faster about the alts or digital asset space because I think many people came into this world in Bitcoin and maybe a bit of Ethereum. And I think people are starting to realize that there's actually a much bigger revolution going on. I'd love to get your thoughts on, okay, what really is going on in this digital asset space? Where are the areas that you see a building out and how are you thinking about that in managing portfolios? Yeah. I mean, I think there's really two big areas, one, one, which is just massive. And so the first massive area I think that's really exciting right now is decentralized finance. Um, it's this concept of, you know, you take the existing financial system and you remove most of the middlemen, you open it up, you make it global and everything trades 24 sevens. So there's no bank holidays. You know, you, you do it, transfer the money hits in 30 seconds. Um, I think that's just the direction that finance is going to go over, over the next five to 10 years. And there's a huge amount of assets in the space in that area. The second area I think is interesting. It's, it's much, much smaller, but is potentially interesting is the non-fungible token space. This is kind of the idea of like, you have digital art, you have artists who are basically taking the advantages of blockchain tech, which lets you send something that's, you know, non-counterfeitable and applying that to things like snippets of songs, uh, digital pieces of artwork, that kind of stuff. That's much earlier than DeFi, but I think it's another interesting area um, in this space. Okay, let's let's dig in a bit to DeFi first. So there's a lot going on. How the hell do people stay on top of all of the things going on? And people don't really know what the risks are and that kind of thing. How are you thinking through the whole space of DeFi? How are you kind of asset allocating in it? Yeah, I mean, there's a zillion things going on. That, that's correct. Um, I mean, one thing is I'm, you have to read all the time. So there's tons of different, you know, mailing lists where people send out, you know, updates of what's going on in DeFi this week. 
because you can't pay attention to every project all the time. So newsletters and mailing lists is, is a big thing. Um, and then you have like the major projects, right? So as an investor, when you first start looking into this space, you know, I think about constructing a portfolio around the major assets. And so if you look at DeFi, the major assets are, are really fall into, I'd say, two buckets. You have decentralized exchanges. So think, you know, Coinbase or Binance, but decentralized. And then you have lending protocols. And, you know, within each of those categories on the decentralized exchange or DEX or short category, you have Uniswap, uh, SushiSwap, ZeroX, those are kind of the major players. And then um, in the lending protocol space, you really have three big players, MakerDAO, Aave, and Compound. And how do people think about the risks in this space? You know, because obviously the yields are pretty high. Um, so that's in the lending side. How do you think about the risks in the lending side? And we'll talk about a bit about the decentralized exchange as well in a second. So sure. talk about the risk, how, how, how people can think through this. Yeah, so I think on the lending side, you know, there's, there's a couple of risks. Um, one is the risk that you have with using these smart contracts. So if you think, if you think about a legal agreement in the traditional world, you know, if your lawyer makes a mistake, you can generally kind of work through it. In a smart contract, if the computer programmer made a mistake, you could potentially lose all your money. So that's, that's a big risk. Um, one thing that has popped up is there's these, these protocols that will let you buy insurance. So you could loan some money out or borrow some money, and then you could buy insurance on it. And, you know, if the protocol gets hacked or something bad happens, you get an insurance payout. There's a lot of different people working on that. I think the other risk is just um, if you're borrowing on these protocols, you have, you know, traditional margin call risks that you would have in any market where you're basically, you know, borrowing on margin. I think those are the two big risks. So in terms of the, um, the insurance space, what kind of premiums are you paying? So let's say you're getting a 6% yield or something and you want to you buy insurance on that particular thing. What kind of cost is it? Yeah, so cost can be a lot. So, you know, cost for, for a protocol could vary anywhere from, you know, for a really secure protocol, you might pay a few percent a year to insure it. You know, something that's been around for a very long time, like, like MakerDAO or Compound. Um, for something that's more speculative, you know, if you do like a protocol like Alpha Hamora, which is a, a leveraged um, borrowing and lending protocol, insurance on that one very recently costs you about 25% in premiums a year. And that was actually for a good reason because Alpha Hamora actually recently, uh, there was like a, a hack incident that happened with it. So the insurance markets were, were right to make the cost higher. So talk to me about decentralized exchanges because people aren't familiar with it. So it sounds a bit weird, right? Because everybody's uses and exchanges, that's where you go. It's run by a company. You have some sort of recourse. You interact with a company and you buy and sell through that. So talk to people through who aren't that familiar with what the DEXs are all about. Yeah, it's, I think one thing that's interesting, we, we talked about this recently in our investor letter, is like, if you look at what happened with GameStop, it, it actually exposed a lot of reasons why decentralized exchanges exist. Um, and so if you think of traditional exchanges in, in financial markets, you have the exchange, you have a broker which provides an interface to the exchange, um, and then you have a clearinghouse that, that handles a bunch of, a bunch of capital and, and handles the shares and handles settlement and all that stuff. And all this stuff takes a lot of time. You know, the trades take two days to settle. They used to take three days before that, they took five days. And if you look at the crypto space, this concept of decentralized exchanges, it basically says, what if we removed the broker, the exchange and the clearinghouse, okay? And replace them all with 
a pretty simple, you know, usually 500 to, to 1000 line computer program. And, um, it, and once you use it, it, it's really hard to go back. Like when I trade, do something traditional on E-Trade, you know, it, it feels like you're a dinosaur compared to what, what you do in these DeFi exchanges. Cause you do the trade, it happens, the trade goes through and you have your money immediately after, like, that's the huge benefit. Even if you're comparing with in crypto decentralized exchanges versus say, you know, a site like Coinbase or Binance with Coinbase or Binance, you have to send money to them. It takes, you know, 30 minutes to an hour for them to confirm that it arrived. You do the trade, you're doing it for dollars. You have to withdraw back to your bank account. It takes a long time. Um, and so most of the trading on decentralized exchanges is between other cryptocurrencies or between cryptocurrencies and stable coins. So, you know, most of the time when we're trading these days, we rarely ever go back to actual US dollars. Uh, if we wanted to sell something for, for you know, fiat, we'd sell it for USDC um, and, and not even have to touch the banking rails. And you get yield on the USDC, on the USDC anyway, um, which is amazing because you're getting a high yield, yeah. you get the dollar market. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. Let's talk a bit about um, NFTs as well, because that's really exciting, because that's potentially becomes, it moves out of the world of finance and now gets into the internet of value, I guess, and the kind of tokenization of everything. Talk us through what you're seeing in that space and how you think it's evolving. Yeah, so I think in the NFT space, you, you know, when I first saw the space a, a couple of years ago, I wasn't really sure whether it was like digital beanie babies or whether it's something actually interesting. And, you know, over the past couple of years, it's, it's evolved a lot and you see a few different players in the market. So you have marketplaces that are kind of like things like eBay, but for all digital goods, like there's a website called OpenSea uh, that lets you basically buy and sell and trade all these digital goods. And then you have like these more kind of curated experiences. Think of an art gallery that, that you might go to in the, in the physical world, but these are for digital items. And so you have sites like Foundation or Rarible that you can go to and they basically have these curated selections um, of various pieces that, that artists have made. And then, you know, what the way it works is it's a really wacky concept to wrap your head around because you're buying the digital good. There's no reason you couldn't take a screenshot of the artwork and download it and, you know, display it on your computer or whatever. But the difference is the thing that, you know, is the big difference is that when you're buying it from the artist, you have the provenance. So if I downloaded a digital item and display it on a display on my wall in my home, you know, yeah, I could tell somebody that I did it, but I don't actually own the artwork that I bought from the artist. There's kind of a different a difference there. I think that's kind of like the insight behind this NFT space. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that in photographic art, right? So if you've got signed photographic original or a limited edition signed by the photographer, you could have the same picture, but they have two very different values because of digital, right. because of scarcity. Mm-hmm. Um, and where else is this space going? Because we're seeing communities issue kind of tokens. We're seeing sports stars issue tokens. We're seeing all sorts of stuff which kind of fall into this NFT style umbrella. Where do you think this space is going? Because this feels really exciting and very broad. Yeah, it's extremely broad. So I think, I think you know, another area that we'll see a lot that I think is going to be pretty big is musicians, right? So maybe instead of releasing a traditional album, maybe they'll auction off each individual song to the highest bidder. And sure, anybody can listen to the music, but you know, you get to know that you bought uh, whatever the number one hit is from the artist. Um, and like, 
you probably don't even get that much of a benefit from it beyond like the satisfaction of knowing that you bought it from them um, or the clout or whatever that, that comes with that. It's, it's very similar to traditional art, I think, in that sense. But you already see artists starting to do this. Um, the band Lincoln Park actually recently sold like a portion of one of their songs as, as an NFT. You're seeing NFTs being auctioned at auction houses like Christie's recently. Um, so I think a lot of it's in, in kind of art, whether that's, you know, like um, actual artwork or whether that's music. I think the other area that we'll see a lot of NFT stuff happen that's maybe a bit further off is video games. Um, you know, you think about things like a sword in a game like World of Warcraft, that has real world value to somebody. You can't really effectively trade it beyond, you know, maybe I don't even remember if the game has an auction house in the game or not, but if it did, you could trade it through that. But I think someday we'll see these, these items actually trade on NFT marketplaces where you can buy them with, with real world money. And that's not even that big of a logic jump because already game developers make, you know, I think it's 80% plus of their revenue these days is from the sale of in-game items as opposed to somebody going to the store and buying the video game in the old days. Yeah, people haven't, a lot of people who aren't of the video game generation don't realize that digital assets already have value for hundreds of millions of people. You know, yeah. People buy and sell digital assets all day. And when you talk about, well, people need to get their heads around digital arts, I mean, that's not odd in the gaming world. You know, it's normal. Um, so talk me through what you think are the best three kind of or most interesting opportunities right now that you're looking at, just to give people a context of, you know, the differences and you know, just some interesting stuff, because there's a lot for people to get up to speed on in this. So, yeah, give me a top three and, and why, why they're interesting to you. Yeah, so I'd say maybe the, the top category would, would be this idea of, you know, decentralized exchange aggregators. So these are things like One Inch and Matcha. Um, and what they do is they let you trade across, you know, 40 or 50 different decentralized exchanges in one click. So they'll route your order everywhere and give you the best price for, for any cryptocurrency pair that you want to trade. And that's something that's like, if you're interested in crypto or you want to buy and sell them, that's useful. Like today, it actually provides a lot of value. We use it. Um, uh, in our head funds when we're trading certain tokens because it actually offers better pricing than some OTC desk or traditional exchanges in many cases. So that's one that I think is just like powerful. I think the second one is probably, it's a little bit more abstract, but this concept of layer twos. Uh, so if you look at blockchains today, they're pretty slow. You know, Ethereum still only does about 20 transactions a second. It really needs to be in the thousands for, for it to become like this new parallel financial system. And so there's a lot of projects working on these, these layer twos. There's none that you can buy in the public markets yet, but I think there will be over the course of, of the remainder of this year. Projects like Arbitrum or Offchain Labs, uh, projects like, um, you know, there, there's a bunch of others, like Matic is another one that's, that's out there. Optimism is another one. Uh, those are worth looking into. And then I think, you know, the, the third thing is probably, you know, things like Maker um, are very interesting. Um, there's, People also trying to compete with Maker, uh, launching you know competitive projects to it. But what Maker is, it's a fascinating concept. It's it's basically, it's like a central bank essentially, but it's it's decentralized. It's it's community governed, and it issues a currency that's pegged to the U.S. dollar. In theory, you could issue things that are pegged to other assets too. Uh, it doesn't have to be dollar pegged. That's just the first thing that they launched. And what's powerful about it is, it's um it's the only stable currency out there that doesn't um. You know, that doesn't involve backing things with collateral uh, in a bank. 
So it's actually like totally digitally native, doesn't require dollar sitting in a bank account, which, you know, as you and I both know, that there's a lot of problems with that. If you're trying to get away from the old world, you can't just shove dollars in a bank account and, and, and tokenize it and call it a day. And so Maker actually has a solution to that problem. So I think that's a great project to look into too, if you're new to the space. The other thing that interests me is the interoperability layer. You know, people are building, you know, trying to connect the chains. How are you thinking through that as well? Because that feels like a big opportunity as well as we build out the stack and get closer and closer to integration of everything. Yeah, I, I totally agree. If you think about the internet, right? It, it'd be weird if like you had like only websites that, that you know, had a backend in, in I don't know, um, C++ couldn't interact with websites that had a backend in Python or something. That would be weird, right? And that's kind of how blockchains work today. Um, and so, yeah, interoperability is is going to be a thing. Uh, there's a lot of projects working on it. I would say two of the biggest ones are Polkadot and, and Cosmos. And um, I think the way it will work long-term is you'll have, you know, what are called bridges between these various blockchains. And, um, you know, it, it may take five minutes to switch chains. For your, for your money to get over from one bridge to the other, which sounds like a long time. But if you think about a bank, you know, man, the fastest you can get a wire is same day. If you call them, you know, between a certain time window, and then they'll call you back and say, hey, are you really sure you want to do this transfer? Are you really sure you want to send your money out of Wells Fargo? And it's like, yeah, I'm really sure. Um, and you just don't have that here. It's, it's just a way better uh, experience, I think. So, okay, you run a portfolio of a bunch of, you know, of, of digital assets. How do you think about these kind of volatile tokens within a portfolio? How do you think about portfolio construction and asset allocation within this? Yeah, so I think if you, if you look at construction a portfolio, you, you want to have exposure to, to all the main categories. Um, so you want to have exposure to layer one blockchain. So things like Bitcoin and Ethereum. You know, Bitcoin and Ethereum are, are kind of the, like the base assets. Um, in, in our funds, we really underweight Bitcoin. And the reason is, I don't think it makes sense to charge somebody two and 20 to buy Bitcoin. You know, you can, you can get that really cheap. So go ahead and get that really cheap. And then, um, you know, I think the other assets, Ethereum is kind of this smart contract layer. Um, it's gotten a lot more popular recently than, than it used to be a few years ago when people love to hate on it. Um, and, and then, then you have this huge universe of stuff outside of those two assets. Right. And so outside of that, I think DeFi is kind of the biggest next investable asset area in the space. I, in any portfolio, I want to have exposure to both decentralized exchanges and lending protocols. And then within that, you know, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to buy the protocols that are seeing the most growth in users, traction, volume, et cetera, adjusted for valuation. So if something's trading at like a, a multiple of, you know, 200X, it's probably expensive. I might not buy it. But if you look at something like SushiSwap, when it was trading at $8, that was already after a run-up from like a dollar or something. So it's like a 7X run-up. And we actually put a position on at $8. And the reason was it was trading at a applied earnings multiple of about five. And it had grown, you know, 5X plus in the last couple of months. You can't get a deal like that in any market. Um, early stage venture, traditional equities, anywhere. And so DeFi is like super interesting to be looking at from a capital allocator standpoint. Um, and then the last area that I look at is you know some of the scalability, um, interoperability layers. So things like Polkadot or Cosmos, you know, I wouldn't put a huge position on in those for like a broadly constructed portfolio. But if they start seeing more traction, you can kind of you know inch your position sizing up there. And then the very last piece um, that that I think is interesting to own is 
decentralized exchange tokens. You know, I wouldn't own a huge amount in a portfolio of these, but um, you know, things like BNB, Wobi token, that kind of stuff um, are an interesting exposure to the space. That's not it's not as correlated with the prices of things because even if you go back to 2017, you know, volume or prices went down a lot in 2018, but volumes were actually up year over year from, from November 17 to November 18. Um, and so decentralized centralized exchanges rather have this kind of exposure that's not super correlated with the prices. I mean, it, it is, but it's not as correlated as everything else. Yeah, and once um, Coinbase IPOs, there'll be a reference valuation as well out there. And it, I think it'll expose the whole space to being cheap, I guess. Yeah. Especially, I mean, especially if you look at something like Uniswap, which on some days does, you know, 40 or 50% of the volume is Coinbase and Coinbase is trading at hundred billion and Uniswap's trading at 20 billion and the team of Uniswap is 11 people. Like that, what else screams tech, tech disruption more than that? You know, I, I don't know, like that's like an insane statement, even just saying it out loud. <laughs> so um, do you trade around positions or are you kind of buy and hold? And if so, what kind of time horizons do you have up in this space? Yeah, so I'd say, you know, we have a couple different funds. One is venture and companies. One is early stage tokens. And in those ones, we basically just hold the position um, for the most part. Our third fund, our hedge fund, um, you know, that one, we will we will trade things around. Um, I'd say the main thing is that we have a fairly long-term time horizon, though, but we will sell a position if the thesis that we got into it changes. And so if we invest in something and the founder, you know, backs away and says he's not interested in anymore, which sometimes happens in the public token markets, yeah, that's like a big sell signal. Um, there's also just like, we will change the weights of things if something gets really overvalued relative to the other. So like an example of this is looking at Bitcoin dominance versus Ethereum. Um, when Bitcoin dominance gets above 70%, it's it's usually a good trade to, to do the opposite. Um, you know, if you look at DeFi assets, sometimes you can trade around things like SushiSwap versus Uniswap. Um, I think that's a really interesting market where SushiSwap trades at a very low multiple relative to Uniswap because people think SushiSwap is like a joke project that you know might disappear in six months. And if it's still around in six months, that multiple is going to go way up is, is my personal opinion on it, just because it, the market's no longer going to think that it's going to disappear overnight. Um, so there's a lot of different things that, that we look at. I'd say the very last thing about trading is you know we sometimes take risk off when we think that the market is pretty overheated. Um, so if you look back in January, I think it was January 9th or 10th, we took about, you know, 20 to 30% risk off in our, in our fund, um, because we thought that, well, a lot of the indicators that we follow were just kind of screaming, basically one or two things would happen is what, what we thought at the time, either it was going to run up and do a blow off top, like in March, 2013, I think I tweeted about this too, or it was going to, you know, go down 25, 30% and 25, 30% got on is what happened. And then. You know, we got back in and, and now things are going up again. Um, that's kind of how we think about it. Yeah, so it just smooths out the volatility, you know, over time. If you get a few of these yeah. right, you, know, you don't get all of them right, but a few of them right. Listen, look, Jerry, thank you for letting me pick your brains on all of this. I think it's really useful for people. I mean, you guys at Pantera have been trailblazers in all of this. And it's always astonishing to see what you guys are up to. And, you know, just well done. And uh, I look forward to chatting to you again. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right. Take care. Thanks. Awesome. Take care. So Ari is another longstanding friend of Real Vision and one of the people that I really trust in his opinion. Again, he comes in a very different way. He's much more of a trader than the others are. 
And that's going to give us a different, unique perspective on how he thinks about this. And I think all three of these added together are going to give us the full context we need to understand, really, how to take advantage of this. Ari, you're one of the people I really wanted to um, pick the mind of about the whole digital asset space overall, because it was actually when you and I were speaking recently, you were talking about building a, a basket of, of other crypto or tokens or whatever for the kind of more risk-on phase of the bull market. And that got me thinking a lot about this. And obviously, I've been monitoring a lot of these things. But I'm starting to think that this whole thing is much bigger than most people realize. People are still very focused on Bitcoin, Ethereum, and maybe Polkadot and a couple of others. But it's a very big thing. How are you thinking of the whole digital asset space? The first thing I, I, you know, I got schooled in was by Jeff Dorman. He said, stop calling it alts. It's not alts anymore. It's digital assets. I'm like, okay, yeah, I get that. How are you thinking about all of this? Uh, well, there's two very different ways to answer this. There's thinking as a trader and, and investor, and then there's thinking kind of as a technologist or um, someone focused on adoption and, and you know what, what's going to be sustainable and real. Um, we're at the stage of the bull market, uh, and this is probably true of both in equities, traditional markets, as well as in crypto, where fundamentals maybe don't matter as much as, as hype, as narrative. Um, we're in a money printing world, and we're in a world where people just made a lot of money in their blue chips on stuff like FANG, as well as on things like Bitcoin. And so risk tolerance is extremely high. Money is flowing everywhere that it can get to. Um, so from the trader perspective, uh, last time we chatted, I said I thought that um, a, a very broad basket of alternatives to Bitcoin, we don't want to use the term alts, uh, you know, would likely do well. Um, I still think that's true. That has been playing out. Uh, and I think that's actually, you know, if only, only likely to accelerate. From the more fundamental side, I think um, there's a few use cases that are at maturity. Most are still not. So in 2017, we had the whole ICO craze where it was, you know, we're going to decentralize Airbnb and decentralize everything. And almost all the, it, I, to me, that was very similar to 1995 with tech stocks, where a lot of the ideas were okay as ideas, but just way too early. So in 1995, people tried to do online sports streaming. They tried to do uh, online commerce, and most of it failed because only 1% of the world had internet access. You had low bandwidth. You couldn't do streaming video when everyone's on, you know, 14.4 dial-up. Uh, people didn't trust the internet with credit cards, you know, so you just had all of the, it was just too early. Um, even something like a pets.com wasn't a bad idea. People buy pets, pet food over the internet. It was just, you know, basically the valuations were pricing in a world revolution in two years. And the reality is it took more like 20. I mean, it's amazing. Most commerce in the U.S. is still brick and mortar, even today, even 20 years after the birth of e-commerce. I think it's at something like 30% online now um, for certain, certain categories, but that took 20 years to get to. So in cryptocurrency, um, Bitcoin, I think, is basically at maturity as, as digital gold, as a store of value. Um, something that's, that uh, I, I was just debating with some friends is NFTs. That's the, basically the three things happening in crypto are Bitcoin is digital gold, NFTs, which are digital collectibles, digital art, uh, things like NBA Top Shot, digital, you know, uh, licensed IP collectibles. And those are on this insane parabolic tear of very real value. So NBA Top Shot had $80 million in revenue in the first three months. That's proven product market fit. That's not speculative. Those are people who value a Kobe Bryant card on, you know, in digital form. Um, that's maybe a little debatable just because the infrastructure is still so nascent. It's happening so quickly. Uh, for example, you don't really have a good way of displaying digital art right now. There are a few ways to do it, but um, 
So part of the thinking is, well, eventually we're all going to be in metaverses. We're going to spend a lot of time in virtual worlds and we're going to want to decorate our, our rooms, not just aesthetically decorate, but show off, right? A lot of people buy Picassos so they can, you know, put, put it on their wall and show off to their guests. Um, so we're still away, away from that, you know, from having metaverses, from having uh, viewing galleries with real traction. Um, but we have proven product market fit with NFTs. The other is DeFi. Uh, this is probably a, a somewhat un, uh, controversial or at least unpopular view. I think DeFi is on the wrong side of the Gartner hype cycle. Um, meaning I, I think it's going to do very well this bull run. I'm, I'm bullish on DeFi, but this is sandbox stage. Th these are uh, new, barely tested protocols being entrusted with tens of billions of dollars. And I think the people currently playing in them mostly understand that. They're not shocked when there's a hack or, or an exploit and $50 million vanishes. But as this bull market goes on and institutions dip their toes in and more retail investors dip their toes in, I think they're going to be unpleasantly surprised at how nascent this infrastructure is, that it's still at experimental phase. It's not, it's, it's I think five to 10 years away from seriously competing with traditional financial infrastructure. It will, it's gonna change the world. It's just like e-commerce in 1995. Yeah, it kind of feels like, and I don't know where, but that, that okay, like the, the main cryptocurrencies themselves, okay, they're pretty established in what they are. Some will do really well, some will do less well, but fine. But this whole, these two spaces, the NFT space, yes, there's a product market fit, but as yet we don't know how to use it all, even how to trade it, how to do any of this stuff. DeFi, same, as you say, it's really nascent. So it's the early stage and we'll see the, a bigger boom bust phase, much like we saw with ICOs. I mean, ICOs are still valuable things. I mean, token offerings are going to be part of our lives forever. Um, Everyone's kind of written them off because of the previous narrative. But that was just the test, I guess. It's all the same, right? Uh, agreed. And worth noting that if you invested in every ICO, you made a lot of money through today because a small number of the highest quality ones are incredibly valuable today. Things like Polkadot and Filecoin. I mean, Filecoin uh, is, is kind of pseudo launched, but it, it, it is liquid for some people and the market cap is, uh, has done incredibly well for ICO investors. Um, the reality is that retail doesn't have equal weight exposure. Um, they end up getting, usually they can't get access to the best deals and they end up in the junk. And so retail in general got hurt in the ICO craze, but um, it's not like ICOs as a whole were value destroying. Uh, they funded projects like Polkadot that are incredibly valuable today. Um, but I agree, ICOs aren't going away. Um, people are experimenting with new methods of distributing tokens for regulatory ease. Um, ICOs are so difficult to do in the US that uh, things like what Uniswap did, where they basically, if you have a functioning mainnet and then you give away your token, that's, uh, the SEC has suggested that that's not a security or at least might not be because the project is already sufficiently decentralized before you distribute the token. So a team, one way to monetize is a team can do this airdrop and give themselves a lot of tokens. So effectively they can be, if there's market demand for the token, they can be raising money um, to, and uh, let me clarify one thing. Um, how can you have a decentralized protocol with a centralized team? Uh, so the Uniswap model is the protocol itself is truly decentralized. The team has no control over it, but they're kind of a development team that will periodically be releasing new versions. And it's up to the market to decide if they want to upgrade. Uh, every individual can choose, do, do we want to be using the new Uniswap or the old? So it's kind of a uh, very similar to Bitcoin Core, by the way. Bitcoin is a decentralized protocol. No one has any control over it. 
the Bitcoin core development team periodically releases client updates, and it's kind of up to the world to decide if we want to make use of the latest upgrade. So, okay, this is a very hard space for most people to deal with because there's so much going on, right? So you're at the cutting edge of that, running a portfolio and a good-sized portfolio in the space. How do you do portfolio construction when you're going further out on the risk curve? Um, how, do you, how do you think about that? Um, the, probably the most common way to think about it is thematic. So uh, you can say, we, you know, we believe in DeFi. Let's let's uh, then do some bottom-up analysis and say, what are the highest quality projects in that? And we want to have a certain amount of exposure to that as a theme. Um, another angle that's a more trader angle is thinking about money flows. So one thing that we think about at Block Tower is we've created baskets that are geographic. So we have a, a Korean retail basket, for example. And so basically, if we say, you know what, we see interest picking up in Korea, we think retail money's uh, flowing in and it's going to be accelerating. We have a kind of list ready of coins to buy that aren't really, it's not really about themes. It's not really about fundamentals. It's more, we just think there's money that's going to be flowing into these names. Um, so you can do it by geography. You can do it by uh, onboarding platforms. So for example, Binance has um, a meaningful percentage of all new retail onboardings are happening on Binance right now. Well, when Binance retail, when, when a Binance uh, a new, new customer onboards, they're likely to buy assets listed on Binance. Now, Binance is a lot of assets, but there are other exchanges, some of Japan's biggest exchanges, for example, that only give you 10 assets to choose from. So if you have a lot of onboardings onto those exchanges, probably those 10 assets will do well. Yeah, kind of like indexation, you know, it drives certain things. How are you thinking through, and I ha I've been meaning to ask you about this, emerging market allocation? Because, you know, we are, the space has not really come from the traditional asset management space, but we know that emerging markets is an allocation. And we know that, for example, India or some of these other countries are going to see huge changes in this whole space. Other ways of getting exposure to some of this, or is it still too nascent to be able to get that geography split down to even emerging market level? It's tough. Um, so we're, we, we do make some VC investments at Block Tower, but it's not our, uh, our core focus. So you know, we've been talking about tokens. They're obviously platform plays. So Coinbase was predominantly, uh, Coinbase serves much of the world today, but it is a Western hemisphere and US focused platform. Um, if you wanted to bet on say Indian retail adoption, there's likely local onboarding site, you know, platforms that cater to Indian retail that have um, maybe some local advantages over Coinbase. Uh, we see this with, with exchange fragmentation. So, you know, it's a different type of customer that trades on Coinbase versus Swobi versus Binance. Um, some very clear geographic segmentation there. Um, so I, I think I'd probably be looking at equity plays if I wanted to, to really narrow in on a bet like that. Uh, yeah, and that's pretty early. And as you say, most of them don't trade yet, so it's actually not easy. So I want to move forward and say, okay, what are the three most interesting things on your radar screen in this whole space? Things that you're going, yeah, this is really interesting to me. Well, outside of the trader mentality necessarily, more of the, yeah. okay, this is this might be real, this might be something big. What are you looking at? Um, it's it's hard not to talk about NFTs just because of how they've so incredibly boomed. And, and I think a key point is that it, this is the bull cycle where cryptocurrencies kind of ceases to be a relevant term. So uh, and here's an anecdote from one of my team members. He was riding in a taxi cab and uh, somehow crypto came up. I think the guy said, what do you do? He said, I'm a crypto investor. And the guy said, um, 
oh, I think I've got a, a top shot. I, I, I was thinking of feigning a bad Brooklyn accent, but I'm going to avoid it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, thick, heavy accent. And, and I've got a, you know, a LeBron James card on top shot. Is that a crypto? And this is someone who had no interest in cryptocurrency, barely, you know, has heard of Bitcoin, doesn't know or care. But he's, a, he's a, an NBA fan and a card collector. And so his uh, onboarding route to cryptocurrency was collectibles. He doesn't care what platform it's on. NBA Top Shot runs on Flow. He doesn't care if it runs on Flow or Ethereum. He just, you know, he's a collector and, and values the card. So um, I think that's a, a very meaningful thing where we were, we're and, I, and I think that may play out in, mar- in a market sense as well, where we may see diverging market cycles between different use cases. Currently, mm-hmm. everything in crypto is extremely correlated. It's kind of the same group of holders. That's a big part of the reason for the correlation. You might say, why should digital art be correlated to Bitcoin? Well, if it's the same people who own both, you get kind of a portfolio you know, wealth effect, a portfolio rebalancing effect. If it's different people, then there's less correlation. Um, an area I'm excited about that's frankly taken longer than I expected is gaming. So um, I think uh, basically collectibles and art and gaming are the two onboarding ramps for retail to get comfortable with NFTs. And we, we see it in, in things like uh, gaming skins. So there's a platform called Wax that is doing incredible volume um, with gaming skins, and that's centralized or semi-centralized. Um, I think fairly soon you'll see some small game studios kind of tokenize their games. Um, we, we have things like Axies Infinity that are crypto native and that they're, they're gangbusters. Uh, they have, actually I can't quote the latest number, but but maybe something like 30,000 daily active users. Um, so, you know, by traditional standards, that's quite small, but, by, but you're getting into kind of real proof of concept there. Um, and that's a game where tokens are in- integrated at many levels. So the game characters themselves are NFTs, but you can also buy land as NFTs you can, uh, there's a token that you can use to level up your character and it's all integrated with the gameplay. Um, so that model is, I think, going to be ubiquitous in four years. That's a, a huge growth area. And as soon as it, it, the way innovation always works is it's always some uh, small upstart that tests new things because they don't have much to lose. As soon as they prove the concept, you're going to have a bunch of big game studios follow on as quickly as they can because it's just going to increase their monetization per user. Do you think the tokens from one game will be transferable to another? Is that where this is going? So the metaverse has its own set of currencies that are interoperable? I think uh, I think you're going to have both. So um, you'll have walled gardens. So someone like a blizzard may say, you know, we don't want to let our, our economic assets be shareable and we don't want to let anyone else's in our ecosystem. Um, basically, enemies with pseudo monopolies generally try to wall off the garden. But and then everyone else says, well, we can't compete head to head with blizzard. We can't build a big enough walled garden. We can't build network effects alone. So let's band together. So I think you're going to see both uh, kind of open source worlds. I mean, it, it, you know, you think about um, a series of indie games that are all struggling to get to critical mass and they get together and they say, Hey guys, why don't we make items and characters somewhat interoperable and pool our network effects? It's such a no brainer as a way to compete against the big boys. Fascinating. Okay. So outside of the NFT and gaming space, anything in the kind of protocols and other stuff out there or DeFi that was really taking your eye to say, Hey, this, this could be something really big. People should keep an eye on it. So something uh, we've been talking about in crypto for five years is the role of interoperability. So um, four years ago, I, I remember it was actually almost immediately after uh, we launched Block Tower in, in maybe it was August or early September 2017. Um, the first ever atomic swap was done on live protocols between, uh, I believe it was, it was uh, Litecoin, Bitcoin and Decred. Um, an atomic swap is a way of 
basically transferring a token from one protocol to the other without any centralized party in a purely cryptographically uh, confirmed way. And there's a lot of ways to, to have interoperability. Um, Polkadot is a layer zero that aims to bring interoperability across chain with one model. Uh, Cosmos is, is a very similar project in, in terms of its aims. Um, you also have wrapping with centralized and decentralized parties. So for example, you can trade, you can move Bitcoin on the Ethereum protocol now. Bitcoin exists on Ethereum in, in two basic forms. Um, a custodian like Bitco will accept Bitcoin and issue a token on Ethereum that's redeemable. So you're trusting a centralized custodian and you're receiving a token that's redeemable. Uh, and then there's some projects attempting the same in decentralized form using atomic swaps. And those projects are still very early, but basically um, we're entering a world. This is The engineering here is basically done. What we're working on now is really um, the fine tuning in the UX, but we're entering a world where there is a very strict difference between the financial asset and the protocol. So Bitcoin is a financial asset and Bitcoin's a protocol. Well, now the two are separate. So if you want features of Ethereum with Bitcoin, you have it. You can, you can transfer Bitcoin onto Ethereum and make use of anything that exists on Ethereum you now have access to in Bitcoin. Um, so I think we're, we're th this is still a little rough around the edges. It, Bitcoin on Ethereum is, is kind of done, but uh, we don't have interoperability among many other chains. I think by the end of this bull cycle, within a couple of years, interoperability will be taken for granted. And how does that change the uh, the value accrual? How does that, you know, as an investor, where is the value, right? Is the value in the financial asset or the underlying protocol? Um, it's an interesting question. Uh, I, my, I, my personal view is um, I think protocols uh, that are competing on features in tech will have a very tough time because it's going to be viewed kind of like a backend, like a database. Um, it's hard for, you know, software, like, the software that banks use to make a particular thing run, it's hard for that to be incredibly valuable because there's just there's always going to be competition around it. There's always going to be innovation. And at the end of the day, people don't care that much what database PayPal is running as long as it works. So is, you know, can you really build a moat around that? Um, we have seen some SaaS companies build decent moats. You know, you do have you do have companies uh, that have, have built billion dollar companies doing that, though. So we'll see. So go back to the your trader hats now. It's okay, we're kind of somewhere in the middle of this halving cycle. You've, you've kind of mentioned, and you did the last time we spoke, that you think this is the time when these kind of other non-Bitcoin parts of the ecosystem start outperforming. What kind of magnitude is possible in terms of the outperformance? So, you know, how, how do people weight this thing? I mean, I'm currently weighted 65, 30, 5, but that 5 is 10 already. I mean, it went up 100% yeah. a month. Um, and I just took a basket and of randomly selected, you know, I did a bit of work, but I'm like, I'm not smart enough and I don't have the time to look at it. How, how, do, people, how do people do this and what's the opportunity of diversifying further out the risk curve here? Obviously, um, taking on more risk. <laughs> It's, it's tough, he, he, like a, a, an almost a weird fact is that um, there's almost never been a point in a purely trading sense when it made sense to own Bitcoin, talking past tense, because basically whenever Bitcoin's in bull mode, altcoins generally outperform, and whenever Bitcoin is selling off, uh, altcoins sell off harder. So if you knew, basically, if you were supremely confident that Bitcoin's in a bull run, you'd want to own altcoins. And when you're not in a bull run, you don't want to own anything, you want to own cash. 
Um, the reality, though, is we can't time things perfectly. We're not perfectly confident in that. And so it's a very risky play, owning a lot of junk that you don't want to own long term. So um, it's not at all irrational to buy and hold Bitcoin, because even if you think it doesn't have the absolute highest expected value, uh, it likely has the least risk. So it, one way I think about it is if I'm willing to have $100 of Bitcoin exposure, my alternative is not $100 of alt exposure. It's maybe $60 of alt exposure. And then the question is, that's kind of the risk adjusted, you know, very rough numbers. But um, so then the question is, well, what do I think is going to do better, $100 of Bitcoin or $60 of alts? Um, personally, I try to time this. I think I have some edge in timing it, but it's risky and it keeps me up at night. And I don't, you know, I'm not particularly recommending that anyone else try to do it. Um, if I had to buy, uh, basically, if I had to assemble a crypto portfolio and I couldn't touch it for three years, I, it might be only Bitcoin. And the reason for that is um, I just have too much uncertainty about everything else. So, you know, this bull run, I think Ethereum is going to do extremely well um, in terms of the, the, the kind of scale of outperformance. Um, my base case is that Ethereum 3x is Bitcoin in the exchange rate, um, but that's not guaranteed, you know, uh, and and. Ethereum is facing serious competition. Ethereum fees right now make it almost unusable for anything other than DeFi. Um, for example, to mint a, a work of digital art now costs more than $500. So you've eliminated a huge breadth of use cases. And this is always a discussion in crypto. So every time a bull run happens, you know, this, late 2017, Bitcoin fees were outrageous. They got over $100 at one point per transaction. That opened up room for competition. Suddenly, there was a narrative that things like Ripple and Litecoin uh, and IOTA are useful because Bitcoin's too expensive for small transactions. Um, and, and the answer by Bitcoin was, well, given a little more time, we're building layer twos like Lightning. Uh, you're going to have side change. You're going to have other ways of using Bitcoin more cheaply. That's the narrative from Ethereum. So Ethereum is working on 2.0, which in theory should dramatically increase scale and throughput. You also have layer twos, you have Z ZK snarks, you have all sorts of scaling solutions, um, but it's a bit of a race. Uh, if Ethereum can't roll out those scaling solutions, they do create room for a serious competitor to potentially seize that market share and, and, and seize those network effects. Because uh, there's basically you can't do much on Ethereum today that isn't a multi-thousand dollar transaction. It's just not economic. Fascinating. Ari, listen, thank you. I really appreciate it. Lots to think about there and uh, exciting times ahead, I think. You know, I think this whole space, as you said, is this is early stage still of where all of this other stuff is going. You know, the alternative within this space is huge. And it's, it, you know, if we sit back in 10 years time, I think we'll be shocked how far it's got to. It, it is changing the world. Just it, 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 in some ways, it, it, it feels both manic, but it's also kind of slow motion. Yeah. I totally agree. Listen, my friend, thank you very much. Uh, great to catch up and I'll speak soon. Thank you. You know, I didn't know where this was all going to go because obviously I hadn't spoken to the guys beforehand. And I have actually been blown away by what I've learned in these three interviews. My head is exploding with how large this all is. Now, yes, it is a long-term thing. There's short-term abilities to trade it, as we heard from Ari. As we heard from Joey and Jeff, I mean, there's some really incredible opportunities. And from all of them, we get to understand that this whole metaverse, the, the internet of value, how everything is changing, is really probably the biggest thing any of us have ever seen in our lives. And this whole week on Real Vision is going to explore many of these topics in more depth so we can really understand the magnitude of what is coming. 
and how best to navigate it. I know I've picked a basket of alts or digital assets. Again, as I've said, I didn't really know which ones to choose. So I looked at ones that I thought were getting network effects, that were doing interesting things, and then tried to balance them between kind of DeFi um, exchanges and derivatives. I wasn't, I don't really understand where the NFT space is going and where I can invest. Maybe it's one of the exchanges. It's something that's on my radar screen from these conversations because they're all very interested in it, and I am too. But that's what I did. I did, built a basket of 10, and they're performing extremely well already. And I'm going to have some that aren't great in it and some are gangbusters, at least I hope so. But it, hopefully this will give you a chance to do your own homework and figure out how best to construct the right risk-reward for you to take advantage of going out of the risk curve in this whole digital asset space. there since you got to the end i'm guessing you liked the video and that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right and that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring real vision to make videos for them one of our recent client videos just hit a hundred thousand organic views on youtube and there were no kittens in sight so if you want to find out how real vision can make a video for your company just email us at customvideo at realvision.com You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.